Welcome to the American Association of Critical Care Nurses Leadership Podcast, exploring leadership in nursing through inspiring conversations. Today's episode is sponsored by AACN's Nurse Leadership and Innovation Training Program, Clinical Scene Investigator Academy, with information available at aacn.org forward slash academy. Now, here's your host, AACN's Chief Clinical Officer, Connie Barden. Hi, it's Connie Barden, and I'm here today to talk with two colleagues, Bradford Anderson and Rachel Sterling, who I think are going to talk about a a new and different topic connected to leadership, and that is because it's a clinical one. So as a way of very brief introductions, Bradford is the Director of Education and Training, and Rachel is an ECMO nurse practitioner at the Institute for Extracorporeal Life Support in San Antonio, Texas. So welcome to both of you. Thank you so much for getting away from ECMO devices and uh, sitting down to talk with me today. Thank you for having us. Um, I think it would probably be best if each of you could sort of start with telling folks who are listening a little bit about yourselves. You're in these amazing positions that we're going to dive into deeply in a little bit related to the ECMO program and the institute you're involved with. But what's the, uh, you know, couple of minute cliff notes of what got you here in terms of your nursing career? Anybody, Bradford, Rachel, go for it. Sure. I'll go ahead and start. Um, thank you for having us. We're we're excited to talk about, we love to talk about ECMO. Um, so my my background, I've been a critical care nurse um, originally from San Antonio, kind of went away for school, realized it snows other places, so came back to the warm of Texas um, and started as a, a CBICU nurse um, about almost eight years ago. Um, and then did nurse practitioner, um, so actually started, graduated and, and started my role as an ECMO nurse practitioner right in the middle of COVID. So right, fall of 2020, um, which has been definitely an, an interesting time to start a new job and a new pandemic and, and a new um, degree. But I mean, I definitely just kind of going back, didn't see myself as a nurse. Um, my undergrad was actually in, in psychology. I didn't know anybody that was a nurse. So sort of came up with the idea my senior year, just looking through, you know, options. And I remember Googling, like, what exactly is a nurse? Like, what degree do you need? Is it an RN? What is an LVN? I mean, I had no idea or nobody to ask. So it's kind of funny just how I, I it feels sort of like a random choice, um, but could not have been a better one. I, I know within a year of being bedside, I was like, I could not have done anything else. Like truly being a nurse is, is who I am. So I'm glad I stumbled upon it. Wow. I think that's fascinating because as folks will hear, when we hear more about what you're doing with the ECMO program, that's an amazing trajectory to get to the kinds of stuff you're doing today. How about you, Bradford? Um, for me, I, I was kind of similar to Rachel. You know, I had initially gone to school. I was uh, really big into um, uh, working out, exercise. I, 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 my first degree is actually in exercise physiology. I thought a lot about physical therapy school, and I've always been kind of exposed to the medical field. Uh, I went to a high school that was dedicated for health professions in San Antonio called Health Careers High School. Um, so I've always kind of been around the field. I just didn't know exactly how I wanted to uh, to be involved. Um, and 
you know, my, I come from, uh, my, my dad was uh, in the Navy, my brother is an army, and uh, I really wanted to kind of pay uh, homage to my family's uh, lineage to the military. And I wanted to kind of grow and develop in, in, in that right itself. So I, I joined the Army uh, Texas National Guard uh, after I got my first degree, which was kind of an interesting uh, time frame. And uh, in that regard, I got exposed to a lot of great things. I went to um, military leadership school. I went to through OCS. And um, from there, when I was transitioning out, I was debating what what exactly I'm going to do on the civilian side and how am I going to uh, how am I going to apply this new skill set that I have. And nursing school, similarly, um, was something that would seem very appealing. And you know, I think the biggest appeal to me was that it seemed so versatile. You could do almost anything you wanted to. Um, and uh, of course, I started bedside in, in an ICU. I was an ICU surgical ICU nurse at the beginning. Uh, met Rachel when they combined our units into the CVICU and um, and got introduced to ECMO um, shortly thereafter, actually a little before we we combined, but um, little by little we've been, uh, I think, uh, kind of uh, started dipping the toe in the in the ECMO pond. And then uh, I think uh, as you'll as you'll hear uh, Rachel and me talk today, you'll, you'll understand that we both kind of jump in with both feet uh, after we after we know we're invested. <laughs> Wow, that's absolutely amazing. So um, tell us a little bit about the overview of, of what you're doing now. There's Institute. I know you're at Methodist Hospital in San Antonio. So what, what's the day-to-day -day picture that you can paint for us? And then we'll dive a little deeper into your roles and that kind of thing. Sure. So it's different different for both of us. So as you know, the ECMO nurse practitioner, my, my primary role is within the hospital, um, also helping with not only referrals and, and bringing patients in um, from outlying hospitals for ECMO, because of where we are in Texas, um, we're right in South Texas, so we're really the first center. We have this a huge catchment area um, for referrals that they're just rural hospitals that do not have the same resources. So that's been kind of a big part of my role is, is identifying, evaluating, and bringing patients in for ECMO. Um, and then just sort of the day-to-day -day critical care management of our ECMO patients, as well as um, working with our ECMO coordinators to do, you know, quality and tracking of our patients and complications. And, you know, there's a big ELSO registry, which, um, you know, we have to enter all the data into. So a lot of sort of those fine-tune, fine-detail things that go with a, a large program um, like ours, we we take care of about 180 um, ECMO patients a year. So big program and lots of growth with it. Um, so when I'm not at the hospital um, doing being a nurse practitioner, then um, I help out and work over at the institute as well with Bradford. We do different classes, and I'll kind of let him him speak to most of it. But I but I help with the teaching of the courses, especially as we've sort of grown our courses and have more provider courses or, um, and I'm able to kind of bring in some of our, our clinical examples. Um, I've been taking care of on a day to day and I'll be like, Ooh, this, this x-ray is going to be a perfect one to use in our next class. So. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, it sounds like a dream job. Really sounds like a dream job. <laughs> I mean, there is no such thing, but what a wonderful thing you get to do it. And you see the actual clinical things, bringing it over here to your teaching, which must make you an amazing instructor over there. Bradford, how about you? What does your day sort of look like? 
I would, I would agree with the dream jobs. I think I think we uh, are pretty darn close to it. Um, for me, a typical day to day is uh, if if I'm coming in, usually I, I've got two primary hats. One's for Methodist Hospital, the other one's for the institute. Um, when I work at Methodist Hospital, I am an ECMO primer, uh, and one of the chief primers actually helped develop and and create the program here at Methodist Hospital. Um, in that regard, uh, we manage all the floor uh, ECMO patients. Uh, we work hand in hand. Uh, we get to do a lot of the bedside care. We get also get to do a lot of teaching and education for all of our ECMO specialists. Um, and this is boots on the ground kind of work, not learning in a lab, which is very, very um, satisfying. Uh, I think it also portends or lends well to that training and education directorship here at the Institute, because what we do is we really utilize um, one, the really large uh, patient base of about 180 cases a year. And um, we, we really kind of hone in on, hey, what are we good at? What are we bad at? How do we get better at the things we're bad at? And uh, it's not these esoteric weird scenarios that you get when you take a, a general class. We actually have boots on the ground experience. We say, hey, this thing has tripped us up three times. We're going to need to address this within the next within the next course. So it's really neat to be able to to kind of uh, gel together uh, a program and a curriculum that um, you know is uh, very rewarding in regards to seeing it actually uh, play out on, on the on the floor. Absolutely amazing. And I heard you say, what are we bad at? I just got to tell you, I have a feeling there's probably nothing you're bad at. <laughs> Maybe there's some things we could get better at, but I do all. Uh, I, I think uh, areas of opportunity, you know, I think uh, part of my, uh, uh, in the uh, in the military, you learn uh, through a lot of uh, humility, at least I did when I was in. So <laughs> I think that's where my mindset goes. <laughs> Indeed. And being an ICU nurse certainly teaches you humility too. I agree with you on that. Yeah. So you all are in well, you both are sort of almost calling dream jobs. You never saw yourself when you were just beginning being in something like this. Absolutely amazing. I know one of the units that you're connected with is actually called a lung rescue ICU. That's a pretty unique uh, name. Can either of you describe what that means? What is That's pretty um, unusual. Absolutely. I, I think from our standpoint, you know, um, initially when this unit came came about it it really derived when we were in the middle of the pandemic and uh everything was being sequestered uh to one area and uh little by little you know that became you know what what most facilities would call their covid ICU and um I think with us where we um had a nice differentiation was we had really good leadership to say hey Look, you, everything that you guys are doing down here, your boots on the ground, we wanted to give it more of an identity and uh, give those folks uh, something of purpose and something to kind of be proud of and have that badge of honor. And that's, I really think, where the lung rescue ICU really stemmed from. Dr. Del Volpe, our uh, medical director, uh, it was really kind of his initiative and, and it really pushed, I think, for a lot of the folks, um, this sense of pride and, and this badge of honor that you were able to work and, you know, when you think about ECMO or you think about these really, really sick patients, uh, when Rachel and I were going through ICU training and our education um, education ladder or scaffolding, you know, th th there's always this pyramid and at the top of the pyramid was ECMO. And so we didn't get trained on ECMO until closer towards those latter years in, in our bedside uh, training. Uh, and with the COVID ICU slash lung rescue ICU, we actually flipped that, that triangle upside down and it's like, hey, we're going to teach you how to be safe with ECMO. 
And then now we're also, for some of these nurses, they were just out of their residency program. They, they weren't even an ICU nurse for, for three, four, five months. Mm -hmm. And so we were really trying to um, find, okay, what is a safe and effective way to train individuals and to give them the sense of pride, the sense of identity, the sense of, um, of um, like unit camaraderie. And that was actually the unit where I, I started as a, a nurse practitioner. You know, day one, we actually were moving the unit from the second floor to the seventh floor. And that, that was my first day as a nurse practitioner officially, um, you know, dropped in. And I know when I started sort of the, the, the mindset with it was, okay, we have these patients on ECMO. Let's just bring in some of our ECMO specialists to run, you know, the ECMO and then the nurses will just take care of the patients. And we quickly realized, I mean, you, you can't separate the patient and the pump, which is how Bradford and I were both taught is it was, you're an ECMO specialist. It's almost like you took your nurse hat off and you just handled the pump, but you can't do that in ECMO because they really aren't, your hemodynamics are sort of intertwined and you can't separate the patient from the pump. So quickly we realized, first of all, we didn't have that many nurses that were cross-trained and that many devices, COVID and then doing transplant. I mean, of course we couldn't, you know, cross those. So we quickly realized it's safer in an environment to have, you know, the nurse to your left, the nurse to your right, and anyone around you has the same level of knowledge in ECMO. So if there's an emergency, you have everyone coming to your service. You're not waiting for someone down the hall who's also an ECMO specialist to maybe hear the alarm and come check on you. And everyone else is like, I'm too scared to touch the pump. Um, and we we really saw that into action pretty quickly um, on the unit. You know, we when we had that many patients on ECMO for that many days, um, you know, at the maximum of our long rescue ICU was up to 17 patients on ECMO at one time. Inevitably, there's going to be, you know, mishaps that happen. And and I know we had a an air, an air locking situation, which we've learned, don't ever say that we've never seen something before, because inevitably, it'll happen within a day or two. Yep, um, corollary you know. for sure. <laughs> exactly. Every, every time. <laughs> um, and so we had, of course, just said, I've actually seen that happen shortly after it did. Um, and I just remember, it was so incredible to watch, because I was on the unit and, and in my office, and someone just said, go to the room. So I ran to the room. And everyone jumped into action. No one was speaking. I and mean, we always say kind of the best codes are, are when no one's really talking except for those few needed, you know, points of communication, but it's just running like a well-oiled machine. Everyone walks in and says, this isn't being done. Let me take that. This isn't being done. And we really watched a whole circuit emergency, which, you know, could have been catastrophic, corrected pretty quickly and pretty, pretty seamlessly. There was actually a a traveler who was on the floor that day. And she, she said like, I knew it was an emergency, but Bradford and I did a debrief afterwards because everyone was being really hard on themselves and, you know, that shouldn't have happened. And you step back and we were like, that was phenomenal. I mean, it was stressful. It was scary, but everyone could not have done a better job. We need to bring them, bring nurses together and, you know, make sure that they know that, that this was teamwork at its 
at its finest. And in that little debrief, the, the one of the travelers said, I mean, I knew it wasn't good, but I had no idea that was something that had never happened before. You all were pretty calm. I mean, I didn't think it was good, but didn't realize that was an emergency. We're like, oh, yeah, it it was. It was really neat to see in that debrief, I think, one, just kind of lifting up the team. But two, I think um, it's something that's missed a lot. You know, in, in the uh, Army, we always talk about after action reviews. And uh, Dr. Del Volpe has uh, some extensive uh, time in the Air Force. And I think this is something we've always talked about. It's like we need to have these after action reviews after something happens. So that way, one, we can find those areas of opportunity. But two, we can we can really give credit where credit's due. And I think for a lot of us, for Rachel and myself, especially that day, we we learned that what we're doing, uh, what we're teaching to at the Institute, it's, it's working. Our, our, you know, it's everything's coming to fruition. And that felt really nice. Love these examples. I've got about 10 things that I got from everything that you said. But I, I think one thing that I that I heard in your describing this is really important. Talking Bradford, you mentioned the pyramid. You know, we've all grown up and we start with this, you start with this, and one day you do CRRT and another eventually you do intraortic balloon pump. And you know, ECMO is sort of like this pinnacle there in the long lost land. And so what I heard you say is we decided now COVID probably forced this, but, you know, we had to flip the pyramid and everybody, no matter how junior, so to speak, or new to practice, very soon learned about this. And then the example is just brilliant about how that pays off when the stuff hits the fan, which inevitably it will in this kind of work that we do. That's amazing. And what better compliment can you get than from an outside viewer like a traveler who says, I didn't even hardly know the stuff was hitting the fan because you all did such great jobs. That's amazing. Let me ask you to tell folks a little bit about these roles because you use these terms, the RN primer and the RN specialist, but I don't know that those terms are universal. Why don't, why don't you explain for folks what that means in terms of who does what and how have you come up with those roles? Absolutely. I think this was something... <laughs> I always kind of stem it back from either the Army or the Air Force or the service. But I think, you know, to the to the credit of everyone else who who's not in the service, that, that I think we've really gonna done a good job with defining these roles. Um, I think of span of control when I think of these roles. And, you know, not everybody as a as a provider, as a bedside individual, you cannot take care of 17 patients at a time. And, and that's something that we understood and knew. So what we did was we created these echelons. And uh, the, the RN, uh, the ECMO RN was something that's been evolving for us for a long time. Uh, because like we said, ECMO RN used to be the pinnacle. It was that 300 meter target. Uh, and what we did with the ECMO RN, we said, hey, let's make that a three hour safety course. It's it's silly stuff like don't put your drink on top of the ECMO unit, never step over the lines, right? And it was the stuff that right that would make Rachel cringe every day when she was in the unit. And so with that, she was in charge of that nice two to three hour course. And it's like, hey, this is the intro 101 safety to ECMO. And you didn't really learn about what I call buttonology. You didn't really learn how to interact with the machine. You just learned how to be safe. You learned how to allow that machine to be in your room and not feel so scared. Uh, the next level we stepped into was our ECMO specialist. Now, our ECMO specialist level um, would be someone that I would consider uh, to be a, basically a technician of all the ECMO machines. Um, the and in that regard, there's they have specialized training to be able to interface with all of the ECMO circuits. Uh, they can troubleshoot. They can um, run emergencies. 
they can uh, kind of um, run up and down uh, these different uh, algorithms that we have created. And then uh, stepping into the, the next side would be your ECMO primer. And the ECMO primer, that was an individual who would be, I would say, like, uh, I think in the, the nursing side, we would always have a super user, right? We would always say the subject matter expert. These are your super users or subject matter experts of the ECMO. And they were that resource who could, who could um, the, that the specialist and the bedside nurse could go to to, to help kind of facilitate, hey, like I've troubleshooted preload and I don't really don't understand what's really going on here. And they could kind of be that individual that was on the floor who could walk walk you through what exactly is happening or, or escalate or de-escalate a situation as necessary. And the cool thing about having that span of control, what we've noticed was now instead of, you know, <laughs> before we would have a perfusionist watch your pump. And a perfusionist is highly trained in regards to extracorporeal support, but they're not highly trained in regards to bedside care of, an, of, a, of a patient. And so the nice thing was by having these echelons, you had three sets of eyes, three nursing pairs of eyes on one patient at any given point in time, because you had that bedside nurse, that specialist, and that primer. So it, it provided us this nice little safety net uh, and this chain of communication that went up and down so that uh, Rachel and Dr. Del Volpe or the medical care team wasn't inundated with a bunch of things. There was this, this, um, this hierarchy of care. I like the term echelons. Uh, that's, uh, I don't know if that's a military-related term, but it kind of sounds a little less hierarchical than that. So there may not be a typical patient, but um, so if there is one, usual usual kind of scenario, not uber, uber unstable person, does that mean there's one nurse who may be a specialist or a primer in with each patient, or there's more than one? Is there any typical kind of staffing that you do? So what we really aim for, again, not, you know, there's never a, a perfect situation or kind of an ideal, but what we look for is really that one-to-one -one, um, nurse to patient as able. Ideally, they are a specialist. If they're not, um, or they don't have a one-to-one, -one, we want to have someone taking care of the patient that has an awareness of ECMO. So an ECMO nurse is kind of our baseline with it. Then we'll have a specialist that's typically watching several pumps. If there are several pumps on the floor, maybe three, four, um, and then ultimately have that primer as kind of the oversight, any kind of procedures, any kind of activations, decannulations, um, our ECPRs that they can transport with the patient off the unit if needed, sort of that oversight over everyone. And then the specialists do kind of that hourly um, charting and circuit checks and blood gases, labs, that sort of piece. And then the nurse really is doing everything else either with or in combination with the specialist. Yeah. And all of that varies depending on needs of the patient and skills of the nurses and all that kind of thing, obviously, like any other staffing challenges. Absolutely. And I think yeah. part of, you know, what we've been thinking through and what we've really our challenge are challenging ourselves to do is to think through, because to your point, you know, the ECMO nurse, ECMO specialist, ECMO primer, all of these mean something different to everybody. You know, what a specialist does at my facility, right down the road, 200 meters down the road, a specialist might do something completely different. And I think um, standardizing care, especially in ECMO, you know, in, in, in the, um, in the pandemic, I always felt like, you know, you're in the pandemic and, uh, COVID times, you felt like you're in the wild, wild west. 
I feel like ECMO was kind of similar in that regard was we were, everyone was just trying to do everything they could just to keep up. Uh, and now I think we're trying to be a lot more purposeful and a lot more understanding of what exactly does um, ECMO specialist, ECMO primer, insert ECMO term, what exactly does that mean? And how do we standardize that? How do we um, make this something across the board nationwide? And I think that is a, a big passion, I know personally of mine and of our team is to standardize what ECMO care looks like, uh, which is why you know we we were super excited to to work with uh, AACN and you guys in in the uh, in the ECMO micro credential. Yeah, let's talk about that, which we don't know too many details, but in case folks listening haven't heard it, we will be launching an ECMO micro-credential very soon through AACN and, and you two, and I think some of your colleagues really helped us put that together, so um, that's very exciting news. We we had some other micro-credentials that people loved, and so now this ECMO one I think will really be um, a great addition to folks' way to show the knowledge and skill that they have around ECMO. So amazing to watch your journey. Let me ask you this. You all are leaders, and this is a leadership podcast series. So I get in big trouble if we don't talk for a second about you being leaders there. <laughs> Would you say that you are sort of accidental leaders, like there you were minding your own business, and here you came, and uh, Rachel, I think you were the first ECMO NP hired in there, so you just thought you'd do your day-to-day -day stuff as an NP, and Bradford, there you were, but you guys are now really leader pioneers in this work. How would you describe this journey towards being where you are right now? Some of the people at the forefront of ECMO care in the country just sort of happened and you followed, read the tea leaves and followed it? Or what would you say? I think really both of us, and then I'll kind of go with mine, but we are some of the ones I know I was initially just terrified of ECMO. If you had asked me, you know, five years ago, even like, you know, or told me I was going to be any kind of leader within the ECMO space for nurses, I would have laughed in your face because uh, I just couldn't couldn't have imagined that I would end up in this spot. But really, I, I think that's exactly it. I think I sort of stumbled into it. It's funny now looking back and talking to some of the nurses, um, one of ours that's, that's a primer as well, she had started like three weeks after I had. And I mean, I was, you know, day one being an NP, she had no idea I was brand new. It was like, oh yeah, no, I had no idea. I mean, it's a disease with no, there were no guidelines at the time. We just sort of were like, I don't know, try. Right. right. I mean, there was, there was more medicine than that, but it, a bit, a lot of it, I mean, it was uncharted territory. We didn't know. Um, and so I think that added this whole dynamic piece of it. And um, without really going in and intending to do so, I sort of did become the leader of that of that unit and of those of the nurses, just to be a champion for them, a champion for our patients. Um, and really, we all were striving for the same goals, and we wanted the same things. We wanted the best for our patients. And um, I know one of my one of my favorite moments was walking by a patient's room. And I saw written on like the glass door, one of the nurses wrote, I don't know, let me ask Rachel. And I was like, ask Rachel, what? Like, what is it? It's on the glass door. And it was regarding physical therapy. And they were trying to talk across the door. And she was like, oh, I don't know, let me ask Rachel. And it was one of those moments where I was like, that is, I was so touched by such a silly thing. Because then I, I, I think that was probably the first time I ever saw myself as a leader in that position was just like, wow, they want my opinion. Yeah, who, me? They're, they're yeah, talking exactly. about me? <laughs> exactly. I really, it was just, 
it was such a cool, I don't know, moment of kind of realization. And, and I think I took a lot of ownership in that, in kind of being aware of my attitude towards things or my feelings on things are, are watched by, by them. And I know when I was a bedside nurse, you look up to those, you know, providers that are sort of kind of guiding the care of your patients. And we all have the same goal. And so being mindful, being very much, I think, a team player, um, really not not tolerating some of that negativity that's so easy to get pulled into. And just, this isn't what we do here. This isn't how we, you know, treat each other. We all have the same goal. But this is this in the middle of the pandemic is not the time to not work together. You need the person to your left and the person to your right and the person in front of you and everybody on rounds. We all need to be charging for the same goal. Um, which I think I think has been a neat, a neat piece of this, as much as it's been stressful and <laughs> and definitely scary at times, especially starting in a a role with no definition or you know job description. Really, it's it just sort of has evolved. Um, I think that piece I've been able to take away from it, which has been hugely meaningful to me. Wow, Radford, jump in. Anything you want to add? Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, a little bit different pathway in regards to to the leadership. I do feel like it. It I stumbled upon it. Um, there's definitely things I would I would anticipate that you would notice in Rachel's personality and my personality that just kind of uh, make us a little bit more pushy, a little bit more, uh, <laughs> a little bit more kind of at the forefront. But I think for me, I remember the thing that changed it in ECMO was uh, the first. Uh, ECMO transport that I went on. And, and I, this is somewhere I felt like I could be gainfully employed because I was a medical operations officer um, for uh, for a, a unit in the military. And I was able to uh, leverage some of the of what I was doing uh, prior. And uh, I remember just being so excited because, again, this is the ECMO transport was kind of the pinnacle as well. You know, we're in the back of an ambulance with uh, with the physician and, and at the time perfusion team was with us. And so I remember it's like, OK, you're in charge of the nursing care of the patient. And uh, walking down the hall is like, it's a cool feeling. You know, you feel like you're in a movie. Uh, you've got the medical, you got Dr. Del Volpe, like walking real cool with his, you know, emergency pack. You've got perfusion rocking really cool with their emergency pack. And then there was us, the nurses, and we we didn't have a pack. We had a cardboard box. We had a bunch of pumps. We had drips. We had, we looked pretty disheveled. And I remember being so offended uh, that I was like, wait, what, what we're supposed to be just as cool. Like we're, we're a part of this team. And so for me, that's how I inserted myself into the conversation. I, I took it upon myself to say, Hey, you know what? Um, I went to a, a tactical store. I bought us a bag. I, I went and talked to the pharmacy team. I went and I got all the approval. We, I went through and I did everything uh, uh, at my own volition because, you know, what I learned in the army was number one rule was always look cool. <laughs> and the number two rule was always look cool. And <laughs> I, needed to, I needed to display that. I wanted the nurses to have that same sense of, of bravado and like just great feeling when you're going into a facility. And I had presented it to Dr. Del Volpe. And uh, I think from there, it's like, I got a little bit more of his attention. I think here he started showing it to all these folks and it was, it was, uh, it was a small piece. And I said, you know, now, all the nurses can use this. You know, this is awesome. Like we 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 developed a loadout plan just for the nursing side, uh, all because I I felt like we didn't look cool. <laughs> Sounds great, learning. I you know, I want to go camp out in the hallway there and see you all coming down with you rocking your emergency pack too. 
Yeah. Everyone looks like a turtle, to be honest, with all the <laughs> It's a little ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> but it's cold. That's what matters. Yes, That's always. Yeah. Speaking of transport, Bradford, there's one I want to ask you about, although I think I could ask you about stuff for four hours, but we can't. Um, <laughs> I understand you've actually done ECMO uh, transport in flight and overseas. Uh, is there one that sticks out in your mind that you want to real quick tell us about? Absolutely. Um, I got I got the opportunity to do a um, a ECMO transport with Dr. Del Volpe for an individual from Portland, Oregon to uh, United Arab Emirates, Dubai. Wow. And it was it was a long and uh, crazy transport. It was phenomenal experience. Um, you talk about uh, high level teams and working in small environments. And uh, at that point in time, the medical teams it's a four-man team, and and you're working in the size of about uh, a minivan in the back of a in the back of a jet. Uh, it was really really um, cool experience, and it was really nice to be able to help that family who wanted to get back home. Um, it was also, from what I hear, the the, the longest distance or the farthest ECMO transport. Uh, so it's got a record. We we got a world record with uh, Dr. Del Volpe. Dr. Del Volpe also holds the uh, longest um, transport in the military as well. So I, we added another notch to his belt. <laughs> About how many hours did that take to do that? Trip? Uh, so flight time, I want to say, was thirty three hours. Wow. So it was seven legs, and yeah. uh, we, did, uh, we had to stop for refuel, stop for oxygen. I would say the logistical planning from the flight crew was impeccable. It was amazing. And um, for us, um, I do remember there was a uh, a little bit of a of a hiccup where I had to, me and Dr. Del Volpe had to be a lot closer to each other than we anticipated for those 33 hours because uh, we just didn't have enough space. <laughs> so, um, you know, the nice thing is um, I think uh, we, we be, definitely became a lot closer after that flight and, <laughs> and he was stuck in the back of a jet with me for 33 hours. So he had to listen to all my kooky ideas. Yeah, it's a lot closer, literally and figuratively, I'm sure. They always make fun of me for for telling their parts of all these stories and <laughs> pretending like I was there. I was not there. It was, you know, peak of Delta and I was at the hospital just trying to stay afloat and checking in every time they'd land for fuel. But I think one of the, he's not quite giving it enough credit, but ECMO's scary in general for people in a hospital. And you're talking about <laughs> you are, you are up in the air. And I mean, there is no help. I, everyone was kind of fighting for space in the plane in terms of we need this on top. No, we need <laughs> this on top. And ever the you know pilots getting frustrated and saying there is no on top like we are not everything can be on top but it but you have to think through some of those emergencies of okay what happens if it goes what if the pump goes down while we're in the air and sort of the troubleshooting they got this little like dance and <laughs> this is the part where I tell the story where I wasn't here where Dr. Del Volpe and, and Bradford just kind of got in a rhythm, you know, 33 hours of, you know, resetting some of the alarms and winding down and winding flow back up. And I mean, it it was definitely. We were like a metronome. We were, we were a well-oiled machine after those 33 hours. I'll tell you what. I bet. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. What a story. Let me ask you this. This is really like, I think I'm talking to two people who are, it seems at one at least of the pinnacles of your career and loving it. I sort of live in the dream in, in a professional sense. What do you guys do to keep balance and perspective though? You must, I'm guessing you have a life outside the walls of the hospital and the Institute. What do each of you do to sort of stay sane and balanced and, you know, in, in and of the world? 
I guess I'll start. Yeah, uh, we, you know, we do. We definitely do have, I hate to say we don't have lives. No, we do definitely have <laughs> lives. Um, I, I would say um, the balance, I'm still, I consistently try to work on balance every day. You can ask my wife. <laughs> um, I have uh, two two little girls, a four-year-old and a six-year-old, and I've got, uh, I've, I, and I'm married. Um, and, you know, they, they definitely, my family keeps me grounded. My wife's in the medical field as well, so she knows exactly how hard a lot of this stuff is. Yes. Um, but, you know, the kiddos' uh, activities with them, now they're of the, of the ages of uh, getting to be in gymnastics and do dancing. I was huge into sports when I was younger. I played a lot of tennis. Um, we enjoy um, going out and, and doing things with the family. Uh, also, um, being able to, um, I think a lot of us, like, have really become family inside the Institute and outside in, in our work lives. And uh, we've kind of all gelled in regards to uh, uh, pickleball seems to be the, uh, yeah. the the sport of interest as of lately. That's <laughs> what I'm talking about, you and me too. <laughs> so, so we've been, uh, you know, we partake in that as well. But I think for me, uh, a big thing that I've done uh, is is journaling. I, I've started journaling and and doing that uh, for my daughter. So if I'm on a a long transport, I'll I'll, I'll write to them, uh, telling them why why dad's missing and why he why he can't be around uh, sometimes. So I think that helps provide some perspective, some balance. I remember. Uh, I was actually at breakfast one time with my family and uh, I got called in uh, for an emergency and I, I had to leave them at breakfast stranded. I, they had to call to get a ride, you know, and it, it's just, it makes you feel bad. But, you know, writing the, the journal and being able to, uh, for my daughters to have something when they're older to read and, and kind of understand like why dad was doing such crazy things. I think it'll be really nice for them when they're older. Wow. How about you, Rachel? How do you keep it in the middle of the road? You know, I, I have kind of gone the other insane and um am getting a PhD currently as well. I I don't know what I was thinking, starting a new job, middle of COVID, get a PhD, sure. Um, <laughs> but I think, I mean, I really, I love the research part of it. And I, I always, anytime I'm feeling overwhelmed with it, I once I kind of get into the groove of it, you know, on my off time, I realize I've spent six hours, you know, reading these things. And it's like, this is, this is why I do it. This is why I love it. And it gives me sort of a different perspective in what I, in what we're doing. Sometimes you get so inundated and overwhelmed just with the amount going on and the moving pieces and, and all of that, that I forget how much I love it. And you just, you read something or you, you come up with an idea and, and realizing how much it matters and how cool what we do what we do really is. And, you know, we really do all get along so well and more, more and more like a family, every trip we do. Um, <laughs> but being able to sort of acknowledge even within our own team of, we need a break. We need to all go get dinner. We need to have, you know, a fireside chat and we just need to go sit outside by the fire and, hang out and not talk about work and not talk about plans and just sort of be ourselves. And, and pickleball is right up there now that I'm getting much better. Um, the last time I, I finally hit a ball, Brad was like, if you didn't look so proud, that would have actually been impressive. And I, I immediately was like, did everyone see that? And, <laughs> but I think family and, and just those extra times, we, we all know when the other one needs a break or anyone within our team. And it's like, just leave her alone. Let her kind of recoup and 
you know, go, go on a trip with friends and come back ready to go all over again. Incredible. I think bottom line here, family and pickable. What else is there, right? (laughs) Good summary. Yep. (laughs) Well, you know, um, Rachel Sterling and Bradford Anderson, uh, I don't think there's anybody listening today who could not be inspired by hearing you talk, both from a clinical perspective, what's possible with care of the sickest patients, and also from a leadership perspective, how two authentic, relatable people just follow their passions and look for opportunities and carve it out. And now, as I said, are people who are to be looked up to in terms of leaders in the clinical realm and specifically in the realm of ECMO. So um, we have to wrap up, but if we were on a live show, I would say the phones are ringing off the hook because I (laughs) I would guess there are tons of people who want to talk to you more. So um, thank you both so much for spending time with me and sharing your experiences. And I look forward to uh, talking to you more. Absolutely. Uh, Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the American Association of Critical Care Nurses Leadership Podcast, proudly sponsored by AACN CSI Academy, with information available at aacn.org forward slash academy. We welcome your thoughts on this episode or ideas for future topics. Feel free to email us anytime at podcasts at aacn.org.